Hello and welcome back. This is Miss Caton. As you know, we're reading Stamped, Racism, Anti-Racism, and You by Jason Reynolds. Let's get into chapter two. Chapter two, Puritan Power. Okay, so by now, hopefully you're saying, wow, this really isn't like the history books I'm used to. And if you aren't saying that, well, you're a liar. And guess what? You wouldn't be the first. After Gomez Inez de Zerara's ridiculous money-grabbing lie, there were other European quote-unquote race theorists who followed suit, using his text as a jumping-off point for their own concepts and racist ideas to justify the enslavement of Africans. Because if there's one thing we all know about humans, it's that most of us are followers looking for something to be a part of to make us feel better about our own selfishness. Or is that just me? Just me? Got it. Anyway, the followers came sniffing around, drumming up their own cockamamie, best word ever, even better than Zarara, though possibly a synonym, theories, two of which would set the table for the conversation around racism for centuries to come. Those theories were... One, climate theory. This actually came from Aristotle, we'll get back to him later, who questioned whether Africans were born, quote unquote, this way, or if the heat of the continent made them inferior. Many agreed it was climate, and that if African people lived in cooler temperatures, they could, in fact, become white. And two, curse theory. In 1577, after noticing that Inuit people in northeastern, freezing cold Canada were darker than the people living in the hotter south, English travel writer George Best determined, conveniently for all parties interested in owning slaves, that it couldn't have been climate that made darker people inferior, and instead determined that Africans were, in fact, cursed. First of all, could you imagine someone on the Travel Channel telling you that you're cursed? Like, really? And what did Best use to prove this theory? Only one of the most irrefutable books of the time, the Bible. In Best's whimsical interpretation of the book of Genesis, Noah orders his white sons not to have sex with their wives on the ark and then tells them that the first child born after the flood would inherit the earth. When the evil, tyrannical, and hypersexual Ham goes Ham and has sex on the ark, God wills that Ham's descendants will be dark and disgusting, and the whole world will look at them as symbols of trouble. Simply put, Ham's kids would be black and bad, ultimately making black bad curse theory would become the anchor of what would justify American slavery. It would branch off into another ridiculous idea, the strange concept that because Africans were cursed and because, according to these Europeans, they needed enslavement in order to be saved and civilized, the relationship between slave and master was loving, that it was more like parent and child or minister and member. Mentor, mentee. They were painting a compassionate picture about what was certainly a terrible experience. 
because, well, human beings were being forced into servitude, and there's no way to spin that into one big happy family. But the literature said otherwise. That's right. There was another piece of literature, this one written by a man named William Perkins, called Ordering a Family, published in 1590, in which he argued that the slave was just part of a loving family unit that was ordered a particular way, and that the souls and the potential of the souls were equal, but not the skin. It's like saying, I look at my dog like I look at my children, even though I've trained my dog to fetch my paper by beating it and yanking its leash. But the idea of it all let the new enslavers off the emotional hook and portrayed them as benevolent do-gooders, cleaning up the Africans. A generation later, slavery touched down in the newly colonized America, and the people there to usher it in and, more important, to use it to build this new country were two men, each of whom saw himself as a similar kind of do-gooder. Their names, John Cotton and Richard Mather. About Cotton and Mather, they were Puritans. About Puritans, they were English Protestants who believed the Reformation of the Church of England was basically watering down Christianity, and they sought to regulate it to keep it more disciplined and rigid. So these two men at different times traveled across the Atlantic in search of a new land, which would be Boston where they could escape English persecution and preach their version, a purer version of Christianity. They landed in America after treacherous trips, especially Richard Mather, whose ship sailed into a storm in 1635 and almost collided with a massive rock in the ocean. Mather, of course, saw his survival of this journey to America as a miracle and became even more devoted to God. Both men were ministers. They built churches in Massachusetts, but more important, they built systems. The church wasn't just a place of worship. The church was a place of power and influence. And in this new land, John Cotton and Richard Mather had a whole lot of power and influence. And the first thing they did to spread the Puritan way was find other people who were like-minded. And with those like-minded folks, they created schools to enforce higher education skewed toward their way of thinking. What school do you think was the first to get the Puritan touch? This is a trick question because the answer is the very first university in America ever. Remember, this society is all brand new. And the very first university in America ever was Harvard University. But a tricky thing happens with the opening of Harvard, a thing that directly connects to Zerara and the curse and climate theories and everything we've talked about thus far. See, Cotton and Mather were students of Aristotle. And Aristotle, though held up as one of the greatest Greek philosophers of all time, famous for things we will not be discussing here because this is not a history book, believed something else he's not nearly as famous for, and that's his belief in human hierarchy. Aristotle believed that Greeks were superior to non-Greeks. 
John Cotton and Richard Mather took Aristotle's idea because they too were followers and flipped it into a new equation, substituting Puritan for Greek. And because of their miraculous journeys across the raging ocean, especially Richard Mather's, they believed they were a chosen people, special in the eyes of God, Puritan superiority. According to the Puritans, they were better than, number one, Native Americans, number two, Anglican, English, people who weren't Puritans, number three, everyone else who wasn't a Puritan, number four, especially African people. And guess what they did during the development of Harvard? They made it so that Greek and Latin texts could not be disputed, which meant Aristotle, a man who believed in human hierarchy and used climate to justify which humans were better, could not be disputed and instead had to be taken as truth. And just like that, the groundwork was laid not only for slavery to be justified, but for it to be justified for a long, long time, simply because it was woven into the religious and educational systems of America. All that was needed to complete this oppressive puzzle was slaves. America at this time was like one of those games where you have to build a world, a social network of farmers and planters. And if you weren't a farmer planter, then you were a missionary. So you were either dirt folk or church folk, everyone working to grow on stolen land. Obviously, their native neighbors weren't happy about any of this because their world was being broken while a new world was being built, planted one seed at a time. That seed? Tobacco. A man named John Pory, a defender of curse theory, the cousin of one of the major early major landowners, was named America's first legislative leader. First thing he did was set the price of tobacco, seeing as it would be the country's cash crop. But if tobacco was really going to bring in some money, if it was really going to be the natural resource used to power the country, then they would need more human resource to grow it. See where this is going? In August 1619, a Spanish ship called the San Juan Bautista was hijacked by two pirate ships. The Bautista was carrying 350 Angloans because Latin American slaveholders had already figured out their own slave trading system and had enslaved 250,000 people. The pirates robbed the Bautista, taking 60 of the Angloans. They headed east, eventually coming upon the shores of Jamestown, Virginia. They sold 20 Angloans to that cousin of John Pory the one with all the land, who happened also to be the governor of Virginia. His name was George Yardley, and those first 20 slaves for Yardley and Pori were right on time to work. But remember, America was full of planters and missionaries, and the new slaves would cause a bit of conflict between the two. For the planter, the slave was a big help and could be the four-digit code to the American ATM. Here comes the cash. 
On the flip side, missionaries coming down the line of Puritanism and Zarara's propaganda felt slavery was a means to salvation. Planters wanted to grow profits, while missionaries wanted to grow God's kingdom. No one cared what the enslaved African wanted, which, to start, would have been not to be enslaved. They definitely didn't want the religion of their masters, and their masters resisted too. Enslavers weren't interested in hearing anything about converting their slaves. Saving their crops each year was more important to them than saving souls. It was harvest over humanity, and the excuses they gave to avoid baptizing slaves were, Africans were too barbaric to be converted, Africans were savage at the soul, Africans couldn't be loved, even by God.